if you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be considering verses 1 through 5 this morning. First Corinthians chapter four, verses one through five. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's go before him together in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your word. We come hungry, Lord, for its truth. We come praying, Lord, for your spirit's work in us. Lord, we pray that you would bless us in our consideration of it this morning and write your word in our hearts. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Thus far the reading of his holy word, and may he add his blessing. To the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, a clear understanding of the stark contrast between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom is what the church in every generation needs. A clear understanding and conviction by God's children regarding the truth and the necessity of embracing God's wisdom over and against the lies and consequences of worldly wisdom is what the church desperately needs. Needs. The Apostle Paul has laid this out in various ways in the first three chapters of this letter, hasn't he? And in doing so, he calls and continues to call for God's people to become fools in the eyes of the world in order that we would be wise in his eyes. For self takes the throne in the hearts of men and women all too quickly and all too easily, doesn't it? With the pride of self on the throne, the saints in Corinth, in many important ways, had become indistinguishable from the world. They became champions of haughty authority and superiority, which led to quarreling and division in the body. They became self-deceived, and the, the fruit of it was glaringly evident. And therefore, Paul said that that must be examined, kept in check where it is present, 
and kept out of the body of Christ. There is a paradigm shift, beloved, that must happen in the hearts and lives of believers. What is foolishness to God, which is what is applauded by the world, must be forsaken and abandoned. And what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the Word of God must be embraced. That we would be fools to the world. For as we are the temple of God, as we are united to Christ, and therefore recipients of grand divine blessings as joint heirs with Christ, we need to have this fill our, our thoughts and our hearts. This knowledge must rise and stand against all threats and temptations of the covetous heart that would pull, pull us to do things differently in the church, to order things the way that we see is right, rather than what God has ordained and ordered. And yet God graciously restores divine order to His church. And this process often involves Christ's apostles facing opposition and criticism, ridicule and judgment passed by some in the body we find here. This was true for Paul and Corinth. He had many critics. So let's consider Paul's defense as he speaks regarding he and his colleagues being servants and stewards of the divine mysteries in verses 1 and 2. If being a small thing to be judged by men, in verses 3 and 4, and the revealing light of the Lord, finally, in verse 5. But look with me about what he says in verse 1 regarding servanthood and stewardship. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Yes, it was true that Paul was an apostle. But as we recall his words in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul desired not to sit on a throne or to be put on a pedestal in people's hearts. His desire was to reorient the saints' view of him and Apollos in their roles of service to the body. As Paul was being judged and attacked by some, it was right for him to make the story straight. So what did Paul highlight in verse 5? Well, his focus was on he and Apollos being ministers, or literally, the Greek word is diakonos, where we get deacon from. They were table servants of Christ. And they were servants of Christ who God appointed and assigned to service in bringing the saints to the gospel. And through whose ministry, Paul said, the people believe in Jesus. And so here, Paul expands on that truth. As he again points the Corinthians to his and Apollos' service to Christ and their service to the people. However, it's interesting here that Paul uses a different Greek word to describe their being servants. Literally, the word refers to being a rower or a crewman on a boat, manning the oars. Paul and Apollos were servants executing official orders from their commanding officer. And they were also, he said, stewards of the mysteries of God. 
They were managers of what their master, Jesus Christ, had entrusted to their care and what they were entrusted to proclaim. For what in other ages hadn't been made known is now clearly revealed to those who have the Holy Spirit. The apostles had been given the task of carrying that proclamation out. And Paul wanted the saints to remember that they were ministers, not masters over them. They were stewards, not lords over them. And Paul also told the saints in Colossae the same thing about this in, in Colossians 1, 24 and 25. There we read, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church, and note verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. And so we see this great work of God. This great work of God calling to ministers to come and to minister the gospel to them, to, to be good stewards of God, of that mysterious gospel that was, that was hidden in the past, but now is revealed by the Spirit to his saints. And yet, what does Paul say must be true of stewards? Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That one be found faithful. Remember what was true of the unjust steward in Luke 16, 1 through 13. We considered that passage a number of weeks ago. What was true? He was found by his master to have been unfaithful. And he was fired for that. My friends, the, the measure of a steward isn't eloquence or craftiness or ability, but rather faithfulness. Faithfulness isn't optional in good stewardship. It is required, God says through Paul. And so now it's true that just about everything is okay in our society today, is it not? People are afraid often to be a judge for one thing or another. One may say, you know, prostitution really isn't my thing, but the Bible tells me that I can't judge you. Judge not, lest you be judged, they would quote. Now that is a, a misapplication of that text. But we can easily see that there is so much confusion on what is right and wrong, and how we're to determine what's right and wrong, or even judge between right and wrong. And what ends up being true? Every man is, is his own judge. And no one else is. For some, not even God, they would claim. They are their own judge. What is right for me is what reality is in terms of what is right. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll be fine together. And yet Paul sets the matter straight in Corinth. For the Bible clearly calls for judgment to be made for right and necessary occasions. And there could be a number of them, there are, but for example, church discipline, etc. However, judgment must be done rightly, according to the right standard. 
And that would be God's word, God's standing. For indeed, there were rivals of Paul in Corinth who pridefully and wrongly judged and condemned him as being unfaithful in his service and stewardship. See this, my friends. Fighting within the congregation wasn't the only relational problem in the church. We've talked a lot about that so far in this epistle because it was glaringly obvious, and Paul went there on multiple occasions to correct and address that. But some of them were even going after Paul. They were saying things like, don't listen or even pay attention to that guy, likely. However, unfaithfulness by Paul couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul didn't speak to faithfulness and stewardship just to make a general statement about how stewards need to rightly behave in verse 2. No, Paul was also making a point defending himself against his critics. Paul had been faithful in his stewardship of the gospel and in his ministry. And we just heard his confirmation of that to Colossae, didn't we, in Colossians 1.24. Now, on the one hand, Paul, one could argue that, well, you know, it's easy for Paul to claim that about himself. But what evidence do we have to prove that what he claimed to be true is right? And we'll consider more of that re- in a, in a few moments. But notice that Paul goes on to tell those in Corinth who were judging him what he thought about their words and actions. Look at verse 3. He says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Beloved, it's true that reputation and esteem among men are, are good to to be useful in ministry. It is good, it's right, but have a good reputation and esteem. Yes, Paul's argument here shows that he had a just concern for his own reputation, his own good name. But Paul wasn't a man-pleaser. He wasn't a man-pleaser. He had the fear of God before his eyes, not the fear of man. For if Paul were a man-pleaser, he would hardly approve himself a faithful servant of Christ. He would take a stand against his critics. And we see that here. And yet he sought to do everything that he did in a way that pleased the Lord. And therefore, he stood. I ask you this morning, do you wrestle with fear? Do you wrestle with the fear of man? Do you have a lot of anxiety when you think about what other people may be thinking about you. Is that worry crippling you? Or has it in the past? Those times when people become really big, their opinion matters the most, feeling like it's bigger than life, and God becomes small. You dare not disagree or offend them. And this is really where fear flips the script. And this is where Paul's position and response here in this passage is helpful to bring us back to health in this area. For Paul knew that he had, in essence, been taken before the court of wayward hearts in Corinth. He had also possibly been dragged before and slandered in the court of public opinion in the body. 
They were standing in judgment over Paul, trying to subject Paul to their judgment. And even worse, the standards they were using in their judgment were worldly standards. Remember, this body was full of worldly wisdom. That's what they valued over the wisdom of Christ, over the wisdom of God, and heavenly wisdom. And so they were using that type of wisdom. That's the lens that they were looking through and making evaluations and judgments on things. And they were offended by Paul because he stood for Christ and he proclaimed the truth. It hurt. It pierced. And they didn't like it. They needed to get him out. Damage his reputation. Drag it through the mud. Do whatever needed to be done, said his rivals, so that they could stay on the throne. And he would be gone. His influence would be no more. They looked down their noses at Paul saying that he didn't fit their worldly standards or the mold that they thought he ought to fit in. And they wanted everybody in the congregation to agree. We see this to be true in 2 Corinthians 10.10. They said, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So they read his letters. They recognized that his letters were impactful, but physically he was no specimen. He wasn't eloquent like the philosophers of the Corinthian world. But Paul wasn't that way intentionally, we know. Because he spoke with the wisdom of God and not with the wisdom of men. For the wisdom of God is what they truly needed to see. His body, his presence didn't matter because he was just a mouthpiece. He was a messenger of the living God. To the people, he desired to change hearts. And that had absolutely nothing to do with heavenly God. When you think about it, people who judge others want their judgment to have weight and influence on those around them. What they say and decide should be what others listen to and abide by, they think, and they would promote. But Paul dismissed those desires by minimizing their judgment, knowing their judgment was corrupt. Paul knew the truth. He knew what was true about him and his ministry. It didn't matter what they said because God knew. And God would stand as judge. Therefore, he said that their words meant very little to him in the bigger picture. For God was big to Paul. And the opinions of corrupt men were small and insignificant. He indeed would appeal to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, on the one hand, we can read passages like this and we can say, wow, absolutely, that's, that's exactly what Paul needed to do, and it is. But it is a very weighty and heavy thing to appeal to the judgment seat of Christ. It is a very heavy thing, as Paul has done in Scripture, to say, God is my witness. Paul knew that he was a sinner. But he also knew that he was a redeemed sinner. A man called by God with the most powerful message that could ever be, that ever has been. 
the message that people needed to hear and have applied in their lives, and he would proclaim it no matter what his critics and rivals said. He would set the story straight. Now, in saying that their words were really insignificant to him, was Paul giving a poor example of how saints should consider and respond to the courts of the church or a secular human court? No, absolutely not. Paul wasn't brought before a court of the church or a human court regarding any of the claims of his critics. Merely their opinions, their slander, their gossip that they were spreading around by mouth. Know that Paul teaches and instructs us on how believers should rightly engage with the courts of the church and he is disciplined along with how we should engage with other courts in his epistles. He teaches us these things. But Paul goes on to say what he wouldn't do. Notice that. Verse 4. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now why did Paul say he didn't judge himself? Well, Paul knew that he would be a partial judge, first and foremost to matters of his own life, though he knew himself the best. You know, we may fool ourselves into thinking that we're okay when we're not. But any such judgment wasn't and couldn't be the grounds of his being acquitted. It couldn't be Paul saying, I'm okay, I'm right. And that is exactly then what God would agree with. No, he said, that's not the ground of me being justified or any opinion of myself that I may have. Again, it's God's standard. It's God's judgment and His righteousness that is what matters. And so what did Paul do? He engaged in self-examination. And he said that there was nothing that he was aware of, of that would rightly come against him in regards to being unfaithful. Paul's conscience was clear with further solidified his stand and his stand before his critics. The judgments that the Corinthians assumed to themselves rightly belongs to God. Right? It rightly belongs to God. He who judges me is the Lord, Paul says. My friends, we must be those also who regularly engage in self-examination. And we engage in such self-examination and confession and repentance of our sins before the Lord as He shows us the sin that is in our hearts or in our lives. As we appeal to God's standard, not man. And more importantly, Paul knew that there is a greater and perfect judge. The perfect judge. He is the only one who could rightly and truly judge Paul and speak to his faithfulness. Matthew Henry, a well-known commentator, rightly comments on Paul's situation when he says, they may think very meanly or very hardly of him while he is doing his duty, but it is not by their judgment that he must stand or fall. And happy it is for faithful ministers that they have a more just and candid judge than their fellow servants, one who knows and pities their imperfections, though he has none of his own. 
to please our God who judges rightly and righteously and perfectly. It's wonderful, you know, to be in the, ha- in the hands of the living God in all situations. Whether that be in times of blessing or times of chastening by the Lord. For God's mercies are great to us in Christ Jesus. He judges us and will judge us according to His righteous standards. And that is what we should desire. That is right, for He is just and pure and perfect. David agreed with this in his words to Gad in 2 Samuel 24, verse 14. He said, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. We desire, and David desired to fall into the hands of God, for he knows who God is. God is the righteous and perfect and holy God. He is the merciful God. Merciful and kind to his people because of Jesus Christ. David knew of his mercies. He valued, he loved his mercies. And would much rather be in the Lord's and thankful for it than be in the hands of sinful men. But see how Paul isn't only concerned with defending himself, but also to correct what is wrong by teaching the people about how they should rightly judge things. Look at verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So you know when Paul instructs them not to judge anything until the return of Christ, is he is he basically agreeing with the mantra of the world and the misapplication of judge not lest you be judged, telling them to stop judging everything without exception, and therefore sin would go unchecked? No. He was only speaking to hasty and rash judgment without examination of the case. And how do we know this to be true? Well, in the next chapter, in chapter 5, Paul will rebuke and instruct the saints on a matter of church discipline that they had failed to address and correct, where a man was committing incest with his mother. And Paul says in chapter three, 5, verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. But also, one chapter further in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul speaks to believers, taking fellow believers to secular court, asking important questions like, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? John Calvin rightly reflects on this in saying, Let us know then how much is allowed us, what is now within the sphere of our knowledge, and what is deferred until the day of Christ. And let us not attempt to be go, go beyond these limits, 
For there are some things that are now seen openly, while there are others that lie buried in obscurity until the day of Christ. And so Paul says, don't judge rashly or harshly. Wait until the Lord comes, makes all things clear. And this is what he speaks to about what Christ will do when he comes. He says he will bring his revealing light, which will expose the things of darkness along with the counsels of the heart. In this world, my friends, many things are involved in darkness, lurking in the shadows of the heart. And therefore, until the thoughts and the counsels of the heart are brought to light, there will always be darkness. But nothing, nothing, nothing will escape Christ's searching light. In Matthew 10, 26, Christ told his disciples, There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Christ in his revealing light will expose all. All will stand naked before the one to whom we must give account. And yet, what will be the result of Christ's searching life? Paul says, then each one's praise will come from God. Beloved, all of God's children will have his commendation and praise on that day as we are found in Christ. And though Christ's servants don't deserve anything from him, and we would rightly be blamed for even our best service, yet our righteousness is filthy rags, and our faithful obedience will be commended by our Lord and Savior. And further, if men would slander or condemn us, we need to know that Jesus will roll away all such unjust censures exposing those censors for what they truly are. They will be brought to life and be made bright. I'll leave you with this. Like Paul, my friends, we need to be found as faithful servants of Christ. Even and especially in the midst of a world who seeks to damage and destroy our reputations, who seeks to drag us through the mud in the eyes of others, especially with those that we know, for that's where the true impact of such dragging takes effect, doesn't it? They will lie about us and judge us according to corrupt standards and opinions. They want to get rid of our impact and influence. But we also need to be found faithful considering those who sadly, like Corinth, may do the same things in the church. Even within the pale of our walls, if such sin and corruption takes root and brings fruit in such ways, we still need to be found faithful to Christ. But how can we stand under such actions that press hard against us and even hurt us? Beloved, God must be big. 
our view of God and our view of man must be in the right perspective. God must be big and the corrupt opinions of people must be small to us. Our faithful service to Christ will be evident and must also show in our response to such people. We know the truth. We need to speak the truth. Seeking to clarify and to correct what is wrong. But also and importantly, we know and trust the true judge. And we must do what is good and right now in accordance with his word while being patient in returning for his in waiting for his return. Where he will make all things clear and right. His judgment of us is what really and eternally matters. Not the opinions of men. Beloved, if you struggle with the fear of man, if that type of anxiety cripples you, it consumes your thoughts and your heart, go to the Lord Jesus. Ask Him to set things right. To give you His peace. To open your eyes to see and to know and to love Him for who He is. To help flip that script where it needs to be. Where he is everything to do. It's where the opinions of men, especially those who are corrupt and damaging, are very small. And though the judgments of men be corrupt and self-serving, the judgment of Christ our Savior is and will be perfect and righteous. It will be a hard thing, but a wonderful thing to see the light of Christ expose the shadows of the heart, even those in our own hearts. And though we deserve condemnation in hell for our sin and all that we have thought and all that we have said and, and all that we have done against the eternal God, we will find our smiling and loving Savior who has paid for them all with his precious blood, commending and praising us, being found faithful in him. Praise the Lord for this, beloved. For your Savior, he has paid it all. Go to him. Love him. And be thankful. Take joy in his commendation and praise, even that he's that you are found in him. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together.